This week on The Elucidators, we're recording on Tuesday, July 14th, after a series of mysterious explosions has ravaged sensitive military sites and factories throughout Iran. Given that the Iranians have been enriching uranium in ways that contravene their treaty agreements, and that could eventually lead to the deployment of an atomic bomb, some of these unfortunate accidents may not be very accidental at all. Who do we think has had a hand in the mayhem? And where exactly is this crazy train headed? Keep listening to find out. Oh, also, our question segment is open for business. So if you have any burning international questions you want answered on the show, you can email them to us at theelucidators, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Halley, and with me for the second time is my co-host and producer, Pete Newsom. What's up, Pete? Hey, Steve. Not much, man. How you doing? I'm living, you know. It's, uh, we're headed, it seems to be back, back into quarantine here in LA, most unfortunate. On the other hand, it's also getting really hot, so I think we were all going to be indoors anyway for a while. Yeah, that stuff is happening. It's true. Yeah, that stuff we call <laughs> summer, pandemic summer. Indeed. But, you know, we're here. We're recording a podcast. Where are we this week? This week, we are in Iran, Steve. Mm. You know, we've been here before. We'll probably be here again. Probably. There's a lot to talk about there this week. What's the latest? Well, this week in Iran, nuclear and missile facilities have been blown up. Not just in this past week, but actually in the past month or so, there have been a number of explosions and fires at various sites in Iran. Wow. Yeah, right? Wow. There's one of particular importance, though, that did happen last week. There was an explosion at a site called Natanz. Mm, Natanz. That rings a bell. Isn't that one of Iran's biggest and most important nuclear research facilities? Hey, man, if you ask me, the answer to that is yes. I, I did. <laughs> and I asked knowing the answer already. <laughs> yeah. Because I think we've talked about Natanz, but... I think, I think we have indeed. Yeah. Natanz was a site where Iran was building, correct me if I'm wrong, building centrifuges for the purpose of enriching uranium. That is entirely correct. To the potential of being used in nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So, there was an explosion there at Natanz last week that destroyed 75% of the facility. So, it was a pretty significant strike. Yeah, man. 75%. If you destroy 75% of my house, I'm not living in my house. <laughs> well, you've downsized. I've downsized and I'm moving to an Airbnb for a while. You better just hope the remaining 25% sparks joy, right? <laughs> yeah. I better hope that I have good insurance. I don't know what kind of insurance the Iranian regime has on Natanz. I, I don't know who would insure it. Ah, uh, right. That's, that's a tough one. Probably not AIG. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Natanz blew up. We'll get into what that means. Uh, before we do that, can you give us a quick recap on Iran? What is Iran's deal? Because we haven't been there for several months, and you know, I want to I refresh some memories here. Absolutely, man. So here are just some, some facts on Iran. 
Mm. Geographically, it's the size of the state of Alaska. Is that big? That is quite large, yeah. Okay. So, a lot of land mass. Mm. 80 million people live in Iran, so that's double the population of California. A lot of people. So, if you're talking about a place that large with that many people, the size of their economy could potentially be huge, right? Yeah, I would think so. But it's not in the case of Iran. Iran's economy is the size of the state of Maryland's economy. Ah, Maryland by Maryland. Oh, that's right. Yes. Well... It's not a problem for Maryland. It's, it's more of a problem for Iran because it, it means Iran is what we call in the business a middle-income country, meaning that it has plenty of wealthy people and a nascent middle class, particularly in the cities like Tehran, but it also has vast rural expanses with some very poor people. Mm. And it's in the process of developing. Okay. What type of government do the Iranians have? The Iranian government is a revolutionary theocracy. Ooh. When did they come into power, Steve? Let's see. That would be 1979. Okay. uh, With the embassy hostage crisis that you may have seen stuff about in movies like Argo. If you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. Mm, Cool. Yeah. It uh, got Jimmy Carter voted out of office. Ronald Reagan came in. And we were no longer friends with the Iranians post-revolution. We had been friends with the Iranians for a long time prior to that because we had helped install the Shah of Iran, the dictator of Iran. He fled the country, and we got the Islamic Republic, which has now been around for 41 years. Okay. So, 41 years of the Islamic Republic, which is a a theocracy with big ambitions. What what are their ambitions? Their ambition is to export the Islamic Revolution across the Middle East. And what that really means is, I think, Iran, not just me, many other people, and you know, just judging by their behavior, Iran is interested in dominating the greater Middle East. Ancient Iran did, in fact, dominate the greater Middle East over several periods of history, both ancient, like very ancient, thousands of years ago, and somewhat more recently, several hundreds of years ago. So it's, it's not out of the question to think that they couldn't do it again. It's a, it's a big, powerful country by Middle Eastern standards. Mm-hmm. And it is a Shia Islam, Shia Muslim country. They follow the, the Shia Islamic faith, and they're interested in exporting that Shia Islamic revolution to other countries in the region. So in a sense, they're seeking to return to former power and glory that they have held at various times. That's right. To uh, protect and export the Islamic revolution has, okay. has been uh, a big priority of the regime for decades now. So, as we all know, Iran has major issues with the USA and Israel. They sure do. Has been that way for a very long time. Yeah, it's, it's been that way basically since the Islamic Revolution. Prior to the Islamic Revolution, Iran, the USA, and Israel were actually allies and friends. The USA was helping the Shah of Iran with his nuclear program in the 70s, believe it or not. (laughs) Wow. But that's neither here nor there because it's no longer the 70s. I'm going to fast forward through basically almost four decades of tensions to the relevant part of history between Iran and the USA to 2015, when the Obama administration struck what was called the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal between Iran and several other major powers in the world, principally the United States, Germany, France, the UK, 
Russia, and China, and I believe the European Union as well, separately. And as a result of the JCPOA, Iran, which had been developing uh, nuclear capability and was under sanctions for that development, Iran got relief from those sanctions in return for giving up basically all of their stockpile of enriched uranium, which you need for bombs. 97%. Where did they get enriched uranium? Were they enriching it themselves? Or they were they... enriching it themselves, yeah. And I think they were also purchasing it, both clandestinely and, and through uh, normal channels. They were basically trying to get their hands on as much uranium as possible and refine it as quickly as possible. And you need a certain amount of enriched uranium or uranium that has been enriched to 90% in order to make a bomb. Mm. And uh, under the JCPOA, they gave up 97% of that material, leaving them with just a small stockpile that would not be anywhere near sufficient for creating a, uh, a, a nuclear weapon. In addition, they agreed that they would only enrich uranium to the actually uh, less than 4% level, uh, which you can use in power plants, but you can't use for anything else. That's mm. the lowest level of your enrichment. Once you go to 20% or so, you can start using it for medical research and things like that. It also means that you can achieve breakout capability and enrich to higher levels, including 90% more quickly. Because that first step, that first enrichment step from 4% to 20% is the hardest and takes the longest, basically. Got it. So in order to enrich uranium, you need centrifuges. And centrifuges, you know, I think you and I took high school chemistry and <laughs> didn't go much <laughs> beyond that. And we both got A's, right? Oh, 100%, man. I got like an A+. Plus. Yeah, uh, me too. The third time I took it. No, just <laughs> I'm not even sure if we had access to a centrifuge at our high school. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I, I kind of hope we didn't have access to a nuclear centrifuge. Yeah, we certainly didn't have access to a nuclear centrifuge. But a lab centrifuge is a thing that spins around and separates out fluid or solids by density. Word. For sure. To enrich anything, you need to basically separate out the heaviest stuff, which falls to the bottom. You skim off the light stuff, keep the heavy stuff, wash, rinse, repeat, and pretty soon you have bomb material. That's what advanced centrifuges, advanced atomic centrifuges are for. This is way more complicated than anything you'll find in a high school chemistry lab. They had to give up 75% of their centrifuges as part of this deal. And again, you need those centrifuges to make that highly enriched uranium that you'd use for a nuclear weapon. They also had to open to inspectors, and they did. And the inspectors said Iran was complying with the terms of the deal. Now, this deal was only intended to address the Iranian push for a nuclear weapon. The Obama administration was, I think, entirely candid that the deal didn't address any of the other malign things that the Iranians were up to in the Middle East. Was the idea to basically push the issue a decade or a decade and a half down the road with the idea that like some sort of diplomacy could maybe make the situation better in that time. Yeah, so it was, again, this idea of kicking the can, in this case, 15 years down the road. It bought the international community 15 years, during which time it's possible that the Islamic revolutionary government could fall, it could moderate. Maybe Iran, after that sanctions relief, would get wealthier and it would want to maintain those ties to the rest of the world. Right. Um, it, like any, any of these sort of possibilities 
that the Obama administration was looking at. But they were like, look, there are, there's a lot of other problematic aspects to what the Iranians are doing in the Middle East and elsewhere. They support terrorism in countries all over the world. They support powerful militias throughout the Middle East, including Hezbollah, Hamas, numerous militias in Iraq and Yemen, many of which are involved in civil wars, also in Syria. They produce ballistic missiles in very large numbers, including missiles that I guess are now uh, capable of traveling intermediate ranges and, and hitting uh, targets in Europe. They're now launching their own satellites, so they're, they're making good progress in their missile program. And just generally being a huge pain in the butt <laughs> when it comes to all manner of skullduggery, as they say, all manner of skullduggery, and you know, threatening to wipe Israel off the map, and and mm. stuff like this that we just don't want to hear. Yeah. But the Obama administration was like, "Look, the main thing was the nuclear program. We want to make sure that these guys don't get a nuke. This deal prevents it." And at that time, uh, they were making fast progress towards stockpiling that nuclear fuel. So something had to be done, and this was the deal that they got, you know, and, and their economy could then open up to the rest of the world and get some relief from those sanctions. And all of the other problems with Iran's behavior could be addressed separately. Right. In theory. <laughs> and then in comes Donald Trump as president. That's right. Donald Trump, 2016. Trump, famously re regarded this as on the campaign trail in 2015 and 2016 as the worst deal in the history of the world. I don't know if it was <laughs> that bad, but there were some legitimate gripes with the deal. Um, the Israelis were not happy about it. Our Arab allies were not particularly happy about it because they were still getting harassed by Iran's other malign activities. And Trump's line was basically, we're giving these guys too much for bad behavior. And we really need to come down hard on them. If we give them 15 years to get wealthier, that just mm -hmm. means that when the deal is over, they'll be able to extract more concessions or complete the race to a bomb that much faster. Right. Which is, I think, not an unreasonable position. I don't think it's a correct position, but like it's, it's not completely crazy. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> what was completely crazy is that he withdrew the United States from the deal unilaterally in the summer of 2018. <laughs> so without consulting allies, you know, I think allies were consulted, but it was more of a informational consult in that we told them, hey, we're going to do this thing. Right. Whether you think we should or shouldn't. Yeah, it's happening. So, you know, if you don't like it too bad, that seems to be the, the sort of MO, foreign policy in the Trump administration. <laughs> it certainly does, yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, the European powers, France, Britain, and, and Germany, have stayed in the deal with Iran and tried to salvage it after we left without much success. It would seem Iran uh, is not abiding by the terms at all, right? At this point, they are not. So a year after we withdraw in summer 2018 and reinstate sanctions unilaterally, mm -hmm. Iran waits a full year and then announces that it will start to enrich uranium again. And it starts systematically violating those limits that were placed on it by the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. So their stockpiles are building back up. This is, we're now to a year ago. Are they building, rebuilding centrifuges? They're rebuilding centrifuges as well. They're, they're systematically rebuilding their capabilities that they, they cut down in order to comply with the deal. Their position is, well, the United States has violated the deal. The United States... Their compliance with the deal was the most important part. 
Right. Like it doesn't count for much that Europe is still complying. Doesn't help. It, it does help because those are big economies and it's important to maintain maintain trade with those economies. Mm-hmm. But if the United States is applying sanctions, that's extremely painful. <laughs> right, right. Because as we've talked about before on this show, the US has the ability to like cut off access from the entire global financial system in a way that other countries simply can't do. And we're, we're doing that. So uh, a year later, they start to re-enrich their uranium. They start to spin up more centrifuges. And then we get into some of that malign behavior that we were talking about, right? <laughs> These guys just don't ever dial it back, do they? I mean, they do selectively, but there's always an undercurrent. And sometimes that undercurrent turns into an overcurrent. So one of our first shows was about the drone and missile strike on the Saudi oil refinery. That mm-hmm. happened in September 2019. That was a real eye-opener. It was pretty brazen, wasn't it? Uh, very brazen. Someone ate their brazen brand prior to that strike, <laughs> I might say. Yeah, it, and it demonstrated a level of capability that you know we just, I think, didn't really credit the Iranians with to that point. Right. I remember reading an analysis saying, this is basically something that the United States could have done in the 1990s. Like, they've achieved that level of capability. That's really saying something, isn't it? I mean, it is. U.S. has a much astronomically larger military budget and has forever. So what the U.S. could do in the 90s was a lot. It was a lot. I mean, we, we took apart Iraq, you know, <laughs> during the first, first Gulf War very easily with precision strikes. Mm. And uh, the Iranians demonstrated that same level of capability in terms of ability to pinpoint, blow stuff up. Uh, put holes in in uh, refinery tanks and stuff like this right. from hundreds of miles away. So that was a major provocation because it caused the price of oil to spike. Basically, it was Iran saber-rattling and demonstrating capability and saying, hey, we can take uh, a bunch of oil production off of the global market and and cause energy prices to spike and cause you problems. Mm-hmm. You know, Again, in an effort to you know, get some sanctions relief because the sanctions are really biting around this time. And then the Trump administration responds by assassinating the Revolutionary Guard commander Qasem Soleimani in January of this year. That's right. It's been said that this might have been the most consequential military action that President Trump has taken during his entire term. It was a ballsy move. <laughs> like I think that's the only way to put it. He was on Iraqi territory, and we blew up his car with a, with a drone strike. When we did a couple shows on this in January of this year, we thought that there was a not inconceivable chance that we'd be going to war with Iran in the very near future. And we thought this was the biggest possible deal <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> There was like a one-week period where it seemed like this was the... Yeah, no, it's like World War III was trending on Instagram. I remember it very well. Right. Um, meanwhile, of course, coronavirus is brewing in Wuhan. That's right. And was actually in the U.S. most likely at that time and had been for a month. It very well could have been, yeah, in retrospect. But this was a big deal. At the time, we weren't sure what how Iran would respond, how big the response would be, because this was a major blow to their ability to conduct those clandestine activities, sponsoring militias, sponsoring terrorists, and so on throughout the Middle East. They ended up launching a missile strike on the Al-Assad airbase in Iraq, and 
No U.S. troops were killed, but I believe dozens were significantly injured in this retaliatory strike. Right. And it suggested that Iran might have even given a heads up to the U.S. Because they knew that if a U.S. soldier had been killed, it would be a whole different... Yeah, we we killed Soleimani supposedly in response for the death of an American military contractor in one of these militia attacks. Mm. So uh, additional U.S. troops being killed by Iran would have led to, I guess, even bigger responses from the U.S. side. And that would have been bad for Iranian business. You know, they're not interested in, in getting drawn into an open conflict with the United States. That wouldn't go well for them. So it's been this sort of under the table, low level footsie playing mm-hmm. for a while. From there, of course, we enter the COVID era, right, Pete? Yeah, that's where we're at. And COVID has hit Iran pretty hard. In the beginning, actually, many members of the Iranian government got COVID. And <laughs> I don't know exactly how many died, but a significant number. <laughs> Die. Yeah. I think I remember either the health minister or some other minister of the government. Uh, yeah, it, it, I believe it was the health minister. And he was saying how the uh, pandemic was under control in Iran, but he had COVID and was sweating buckets. <laughs> sweating buckets and coughing and hacking. <laughs> yeah. And then he announced the next day that he had COVID. Right. But I guess the point is they weren't prepared, much like all other governments on Earth, yeah. pretty much. And yeah. A lot of people got COVID. A lot of people died. Satellite imagery showed that they were digging mass graves in Iran. Which is something you never want to see. Right. Do we know exactly how bad the COVID situation is there at this point? Uh, So my understanding is that they had an early peak in the March to April timeframe. It seems to have gotten better in May and June, but may be headed towards a second peak much like the United States, actually, in, in that they never completely shut things down. You know, In mm-hmm. order to get through COVID, the, the countries that have actually done that successfully jumped on it very early and very comprehensively, either by um, putting everybody into quarantine and shutting down completely or conducting very aggressive test and trace regime. Mm-hmm. Right. And like us, they didn't really do either of those things. <laughs> right. They just barreled ahead. And and what's significant about how COVID has hit Iran is that, I mean, many things are significant, but a significant thing is that they're vulnerable at this point. They're dealing with multiple internal problems, one of which is a pandemic. So that's right. You know, other governments have taken note of that vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, one could say that they're dealing with kind of a, a triple threat. First of all, the government was unpopular to begin with. Secondly, there's been an economic crisis as a result of sanctions. And third, you have this really terrible COVID pandemic and an even more terrible Iranian governmental response to it. Right. Which has made them even less popular and even less credible yeah. <laughs> with the majority of the population. <laughs> right. But of note, despite all these internal problems, Iran was still progressing towards uh, enriching uranium for a nuclear weapon. That's right. So by June of this year, while the pandemic was happening, some estimates placed Iran at about four to six months from nuclear breakout, Yeah, meaning having enough highly enriched uh, uranium to build a bomb. Four to six months. That's pretty quick. Pretty quick and too quick, perhaps, for the countries that are threatened 
by Iran. And we'll get into that. All right. So you went into this a little bit earlier, Pete. Once again, what exactly happened? Okay, so there was a building in a place called Natanz. Mm. This building contained advanced centrifuge equipment. Now, here's what I'd like to know. Did it actually contain working centrifuges or just the equipment to build them? Do you know? Yeah, so I believe that it, it was the main facility um, for building and calibrating these advanced centrifuges because they're like super advanced, highly precise machines that need right. to be assembled and balanced within like, you know, fractions of a millimeter. Otherwise, uh, they can literally shake themselves apart <laughs> and spray radiation everywhere. <laughs> Side note, that's exactly what the Stuxnet cyber weapon did to these centrifuges in 2010. Shook them up, huh? Yeah. Shook them out. Shook them up. In any case, there was an explosion at Natanz at this facility that destroyed 75% of the building. Uh, yes. And what they were assembling there were these centrifuges that were, in fact, of a new generation. So right. these new ones could enrich uranium seven times faster than the old tech that Iran was using when the JCPOA deal went into effect. So they were accelerating their ability to build a nuclear weapon, basically. That's exactly right, yeah. So a lot of observers and experts think that this explosion at Natanz set the Iranian nuclear weapons program back by anywhere from several months to two years. Yeah. And that means several months to two years from being able to make one nuclear weapon. That's right. And there, there's a reason for that, that big range, right? Because you look at that and you're kind of like, why is that such a big range? It's because we don't have that good of an idea of how many other centrifuges Iran has in other facilities that could be hidden. Got it. So there could be like some underground facilities. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have the best estimate of how much nuclear material they've been able to get in the last year. Right. Okay. And there's certainly a chance that these incidents, like Natanz, in the last couple months, are going to drive Iran to move all their facilities underground. I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very, like some fraction of them probably were already underground. And I think stuff like this just encourages them to do more of that. Right. In addition to the Natanz explosion, there was also another facility that was involved not in nuclear material, but in ballistic missile production. Mm. And that suffered an explosion but wasn't too heavily damaged. Yeah, so that's interesting, right? Because nukes and ballistic missiles, hey, they go together, right? Peanut butter and jelly, Abbott and Costello. Does North Korea agree? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. They like to keep them separate, but active. Separate, but active, that's right. The, the idea being, if you look at what North Korea has done, they blew up a couple nukes and they tested an ICBM meaning intercontinental ballistic missile, separately. And once everybody sees that, that's usually enough to establish deterrence. Like, they have not demonstrated that they can combine the two, but who's going to take that chance, <laughs> basically? Right. Once the two components are working, you can assume whoever made them can probably put them together. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty tricky to do that, to, hmm. to put those two ingredients together in a way that will explode when and where you want it to. But like, you don't even want a fractional chance 
of that happening. So yeah, you don't like roll the dice. You don't roll the dice on that. <laughs> so, you know, someone's going around blowing things up in Iran. Yeah. What does that mean for Iran? Like, who's doing it? And, and why can't Iran stop it? Well, so there is a country in the neighborhood that's really, really good at covert ops. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Israel. Ah. They are not the best of friends with the Iranians, to put it mildly. So when stuff like this happens in Iran, whether or not it was on purpose or accidental, the finger gets pointed at Israel, either overtly or everybody just assumes that the Israelis did it because <laughs> the Israelis are very, very, very interested, um, as interested right. or more interested as the United States and the Iranians not going nuclear. Now, the Israelis don't claim credit directly, but they issue sort of not so heavily veiled statements that they could have had something to do with it. For instance, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who recently entered a unity government with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, mm-hmm. in Israel, the so-called coronavirus emergency government, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's literally what they're calling it, Yeah, has said that Israel isn't necessarily behind every explosion in Iran. Not necessarily, huh? Yeah, he's not necessarily behind all of them. There's one or two. Yeah, that suggests that they have something to do with some of them, uh, which I think is pretty funny and also obviously correct, because we know that Israel has been sabotaging Iran's nuclear program for a decade or so, Mm -hmm. often with the help of the United States or at least our tacit approval, because Israel doesn't do much of anything along these lines without uh, letting us know what's going on Mm. and getting some kind of sign off. Got it. Israel has been pretty effective at this sabotage, right? Quite effective. Um, So we have Stuxnet, uh, which I referenced earlier. This was a cyber attack whereby the US and Israel jointly developed a computer worm that infected these advanced centrifuges and caused them to speed up in such a way that unbalanced them and spun them apart. And these centrifuges were located at Natanz, same facility. Wow. It's interesting that that Iran did not move operations from the same facility. It is interesting. I think it's difficult to construct these facilities, and it may be that the facility is very large. (laughs) Right. Some of it is is more accessible than other parts of it. Sounds like it's a bit smaller this week than it was last week. 75% smaller, this particular part, yeah. Yeah. In addition, they've assassinated multiple Iranian nuclear scientists in Iran. Wow, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's very hardcore. I think we've discussed this on the show before. That, like, Iranian nuclear scientist is um, one of the world's most dangerous jobs. Because if you go out in public, there's a, a non-zero chance that somebody's going to ride up on a motorbike and shoot you to death. Mm-hmm. That's what tends to happen to these guys. It happened a lot in the early part of the last decade. And that slowed them down. The Mossad, which is basically the Israeli CIA, stole a gigantic treasure trove of Iran's nuclear documents. Wait, what? You mean they like walk, They walked in and took physical documents out of Iran? More or less. How did they do that? We'll get to that. <laughs> like <laughs> the, the picture that's adding up is, is not super favorable for Iranian internal security. I'll, I'll just say that. It certainly sounds that way, yeah. Yeah, and they, they did a document drop to the IAEA, 
the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which is responsible, among other things, for administering the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Iran is a signatory of. They dropped a major dime. And yeah, they, they waltzed right into some Revolutionary Guards building. Yeah, they probably put a, s- a couple extra locks on the doors of that building since then. Yeah, but I mean, all of this to say, like, what's going on in Iran, man? Like, Iran's like Swiss cheese. Mm-hmm. Seems to be pretty easy for the Israelis to just infiltrate whatever they feel like and blow stuff up, steal it, kill people, whatever. Seems pretty easy for all the actual most important things to keep safe and secure yeah. to be easily taken and destroyed. Yeah, it's it's weird. And you made this point, I think, when we were talking about this yesterday. Iran is supposedly really good at conducting clandestine operations in other countries, but no good at all <laughs> at stopping clandestine operations in Iran. <laughs> right. They're certainly competent when it comes to doing things similar to what is happening in their own country, but they can't stop it. Yeah. It's all offense, no defense. And it, like it's because the government's unpopular. It's because people are poor. They're suffering. So it's easy to bribe people, you know? Uh, it's easy to for people to change sides because a lot of them want to get rid of the theocracy. They're sick of it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, a, I guess, a hallmark of a sclerotic and failing regime by some measurements. It doesn't bode well for the continued success of the regime, one would think. No, it does not. Anyway, Israel has been doing this to Iran and other countries. Is Israel has something called the the Begin Doctrine, named after former Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who was the founder of the Likud Party and was Prime Minister in the 70s and 80s. And he was a right-winger. And his doctrine was basically to ensure that no other state in the Middle East acquired nuclear weapons. Uh, he did this by striking the Osirak reactor in Iraq in 1981 in an airstrike when Saddam Hussein was using that reactor to develop a nuclear program. Mm. Saddam Hussein was also notably anti-Israel. And Israel did it again in 2007 by striking a similar facility in Syria prior to uh, the civil war kicking off over there. Got it. So whenever it looked like Iran, Syria, or Iraq was developing nuclear weapons, Israel's policy has been to put a stop to it if they can. The best defense is a good offense, or a clandestine offense in some cases. Mm -hmm. Note that Iran is much further away than either Iraq or Syria, so it's harder for the Israeli Air Force to get there and uh, conduct airstrikes. So clandestine or covert operations make more sense. Well, so... This, these things have happened and Iran has to do something, right? Like, this is pretty egregious stuff that's going on on their own territory. Yeah. But they have to be careful and they have some calculations that they're making. Mm. If they blatantly came out and said, Israel did this, then they would be obligated to respond militarily to Israel. Probably, yeah. Because, yeah, you're, you're saying you guys destroyed a bunch of really valuable equipment and we're just going to sit here and do nothing? Right. It would be pretty bad for their image. Yes, internally and externally. <laughs> but it would be bad for their health if they mm. launched missiles <laughs> openly yeah. at, at, at Israel. That is true. So what they're probably going to do is not come out and say, Israel did this for sure. They're going to be more cautious and they might do something more subtle like attack through proxies. Yes, that's right. 
Describe what some of Iran's proxies are. So a uh, proxy would be one of the many militias that the Iranians kind of own and operate throughout the greater Middle East. This could be Hezbollah, mm. which is a very, very powerful, really, army based mostly in Lebanon. They also have fighters in Syria. Every so often, the Israelis get into it with Hezbollah. Right. And Israel wins, but it usually is pretty costly. Got it. So they can get into it with Hezbollah without it looking like they're directly in a war with Iran. Exactly. Which would escalate things too much for Iran. So that's an option for Iran. Another would be to execute cyber attacks. And mm -hmm. the Iranian Revolutionary Guard attempted to use a cyber attack to poison Israeli citizens by making something bad happen in a water treatment plant. Yeah. In, in Israel. Yeah. Earlier this year, in April, they basically hit a water treatment plant in Israel with a computer virus that overchlorinated the water going to a major Israeli suburb. So that actually succeeded? It did, it did not. It was detected and stopped, but it could have made people very ill or even killed them. Mm -hmm. And this was really not appreciated by the Israelis, to put it mildly. Yeah. So... We, we have to wonder, is there a chance that Iran is in fact not interested in going nuclear very, very quickly? Meaning, are they possibly willing to tolerate what happened at Natanz for a little bit longer? And why would that be the case, if so? Yeah, so I think the answer is yes. It's a good question, right? Going nuclear, like sprinting to the finish line for a bomb, is pretty risky. It could start a full-on conflagration with the U.S. and Israel, which Iran definitely doesn't want to do. Because I think both countries would be able to detect a full sprint towards the nuke because they'd have to you know, do a bunch of stuff as quickly as possible. They'd have to fire up more centrifuges and basically be less subtle about what they're doing in order to get there as fast as possible. It would be a sprint. It would be a sprint. It would make a lot of noise. Uh, not yeah. necessarily out in the open. They'd have to sacrifice the ability to be covert in some ways, probably. That's correct. Yeah, they'd probably have to build more facilities and all of that. They'd have to build a test facility, which is always very obvious because it involves usually tunneling into a mountain. <laughs> Seriously, that's what oh, the yeah. North Koreans have done. And we have satellite imagery. It's like, oh, they're drilling another tunnel into a mountain. So Yeah, we know what's coming next. Okay. And at that point, I would imagine the airstrikes would start. <laughs> so why not just wait until November and see if a Biden administration might play ball again with sanctions relief? Right. That seems like it's probably a pretty big consideration over there because Biden, has Biden expressed an interest in restarting the JCPOA or re-entering the JCPOA? Yeah, he has, he has uh, said that he would like to rejoin the JCPOA. It's not clear whether it's possible to stuff that genie back into the bottle, like exactly the way everything was. And like, you know, the Iranians then take apart all the centrifuges again, they give up all their fuel again. It's like, I, it's, it's not clear to me that that's going to happen quite the same way. It would be a bit of whiplash, maybe. Like, yeah. the, the Iranians have learned things can change this quickly. They sure can. Are they going to be uh, chomping at the bit to re-enter the same situation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, once bitten, twice shy, that kind of thing. But... They still have an interest in growing their economy. They have a big interest in that. They have a big interest. They need relief. The sanctions are, are really screwing them. So there's something to that. And they see Biden as being much more amenable to a deal than Trump. Trump has made noises about, you know, 
offering Iran a comprehensive deal if they stop all of their malign activities. Hmm. But I just, I don't think that they trust him at all. I wonder why. So yeah, I think Biden is their preferred candidate and they may be very interested in seeing Biden win. (laughs) And may even be willing to dial back their uranium enrichment pursuits. Or try to hack the election in favor of Biden. It would be interesting for Iran to be pitted against Russia and China. Uh, in favor of Trump. Oh, man. And, and that's how the election is is actually won or lost. It sure would. Who knows who really wants what at this point? Um, yeah, hard to say. But uh, it seems like waiting four months might be in their best interest, and that might be part of their calculation. Yeah, I think that we can expect some arm's length response from Iran. Missile strikes, militias acting up, cyber attacks, just, you know, skullduggery and sort of bothersome actions Mm -hmm. that that may in fact kill a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. Like the stuff is extremely bad, but Mm -hmm. it it will not provoke a war. Right. Right. And that's a bit, that will be a big part of the calculation. It won't be something that actually starts a war. So in, in the mind of Israel, the Israeli government, I mean, what do you think was the motivation if they were involved, which they probably were for doing this? Yeah. Well, so the question is, was this a warning to Iran not to pursue this further? Was it an attempt to set back the breakout clock or was it both? Because some analysts look at this and they say, well, this was, you know, a very dramatic move, but it doesn't actually seem to affect their program that much. Really? To lose all those centrifuge parts and components? Yeah. I think those are the experts that come down on the side of Iran having a bunch of other equipment elsewhere. Oh, okay. And so maybe this move is more symbolic and demonstrating to Iran's regime and to Iranians more broadly that the regime can't stop the Israelis, they can't protect their facilities, and they're weak and incompetent during a time where Iran is already afflicted by sanctions and COVID. Keep in mind, the Iranians also shot down its own plane in January, leaving Tehran with anti-aircraft missiles which was, you know, that was a disaster. A true catastrophe, yeah. Yes, and and the government is just super unpopular. <laughs> like, uh-huh. So this could be calculated as more of a message than it could be symbolic. On the other hand, they did blow up a really important facility. And other experts are like, no, this sets them back a year or two. Like, this is a big deal. Right. And if, in fact, the Natan's attack did not set back Iran's ability to do what they're trying to do... Israel might be planning some follow-up actions. I would think so, yeah. So if this wasn't enough, and Israelis know that it was not enough, then it was a message. Mm -hmm. And if Iran ignores the message and proceeds, we can expect more incidents and worse incidents, up to including military action. (laughs) How's the USA responding to what's going on there? Oh, this this one's simple. (laughs) Basically, we have Iran's head in a vice and we're squeezing them. (laughs) Like we're doing, quote unquote, maximum pressure. With the sanctions. Yeah, with the sanctions. And the idea is you guys either abandon your entire ideological program that you've been doing for 40 years and it is at the center of your government. It's literally at the center of their government and their ideology Mm -hmm. is to export the Islamic revolution. You have to stop all that or we'll just choke the life out of you. Right. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is one of the most anti-Iran politicians who, who we've ever had in the government, right? 
Yeah, no, he's he is all for regime change uh, in Iran. He is not a fan of the the theocrats or the ayatollahs. Uh, the thing is, the clock may be running out on the administration. Mm-hmm. And if the next administration is in fact a Biden administration, then in some ways tensions between Iran and U.S. might be eased. There may be some opportunity for a reset. So there's not a lot of time for Pompeo to kick off a war against Iran, if that's the objective. Right. Um, To be clear, I do not think Trump himself is interested in a war against Iran. He actually seems fairly war-averse. His actions have not always been consistent with that, like the assassination of Soleimani. Well, it seems like Mike Pompeo has a bit more sway within decision-making on those uh, matters maybe than Trump himself does. Yes, and in fact, he was perhaps the prime mover behind the assassination of Soleimani. Didn't he say that he would feel okay leaving government once Soleimani had been assassinated? Like that was his- Once Soleimani had been, had been quote-unquote, taken off the battlefield, yes. Okay. <laughs> because he encountered Soleimani in Iraq when he was serving in Iraq, and he, he was his nemesis, I guess, or regarded him as his nemesis. I see. Uh, so we have other potential sort of pressure points coming up in the near future between Iran and the U.S. In particular, the Iranian regime has dispatched four tankers full of oil to Venezuela, which is weird because Venezuela is, of course, one of the biggest oil states in the entire world. But Venezuela is not doing very well, (laughs) to put it mildly. Is the fact that the oil is heading there from Iran, does that mean that Venezuela bought it already? I suppose it does, uh, or it could be in the form of aid. I'm not exactly sure. But Venezuela needs oil despite the fact that they have a lot of oil. Yeah, because I think that their extraction capability is is basically nil at Uh, this point. Okay. Yeah. So the Iranians are, you know, they want to sell their oil because they've been sanctioned and they've been unable to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is in violation of sanctions, this oil heading from Iran to Venezuela. Are there U.S. sanctions on Venezuela as well? I think there are. I think there are sanctions on individuals within Venezuela. So there's sanctions all across this entire transaction. Yes. And I guess birds that are sanctioned flock together (laughs) in that the Iranians and the Venezuelans have become allies along with the Russians and the Chinese. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess the Turks are involved there too. Venezuela is just like a party for uh, sort of anti-American regimes in addition to like a horrible mess. Right. Anyway, Trump has vowed to stop these Iranian tankers from ever getting to Venezuela or even close. So that probably means ships pulling up alongside these oil tankers and transferring the oil from the tankers or stopping them, boarding them, some like military engagement at sea kind of stuff, yeah? Yeah, and the Iranians have said that they would regard that as piracy. (laughs) Piracy. Piracy, arr. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, except that the pirates are, you know, 50 times more powerful than the, the pirated so it remains to be seen what's going to happen there. I think the, the most probable outcome is that those tankers turn around <laughs> and head back to Iran. Right. Two of them are still near Iran. Two of them are closer to Venezuela. Yeah. So again, this is, this is, it's a provocation, right? It's a probing. And all of this activity is being conducted in a language of provocation. So they poke us, we poke them back. Mm-hmm. They poke the Israelis, the Israelis poke them back. And 
it rarely rises to the level of large numbers of people getting killed. It's a bit of a, a dance, right? Like, yes, there's a lot of calculation and where where both sides are trying to go up to the line, but not cross it. Exactly. And I think at least the Iranians are genuinely interested in getting some kind of a deal, right? So they don't want to necessarily cross red lines. And they have to know their chances are much better with Biden. Yeah, unquestionably. What this means, though, is that the ball is very much in Trump's court for the next four months. Mm -hmm. And if he continues to lose badly to Biden in the polls, then we might be due for some kind of October surprise. Ooh, what might that look like? Well, it just so happens that there is an arms embargo as part of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, mm-hmm. um, that is set to expire in October, right before the election. So certain things still remain in the JCPOA, like we're still honoring certain aspects of it? Well, that's kind of funny, right? In that we have continued to insist that the JCPOA be enforced, even though we've left the agreement. <laughs> okay. <If> you- <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. And so there's this question as to whether this arms embargo against the Iranians will expire in October or whether it will be continued. Russia and China will start selling advanced weapons to Iran in October. Wait, sorry, let me process that. Yeah. Russia and China will begin selling advanced arms to Iran? Yes, because uh, they're currently adhering to the letter of the law. Okay. Which is this arms embargo. Yeah, they're adhering to the deal, but it, it, it expires in October. And they, they say basically they're not going to renew it because the United States has left the deal, which is a reasonable position to take. <laughs> like, I kind of don't want to say I agree with that, but... I kind of agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we busted the deal and we're still saying everybody else has to adhere to it. It's like, mm, I don't know. That's not how deals work. So that could be another flashpoint. And again, it happens right before the election and could be fashioned into some kind of excuse for military action against Iran if for some reason the Trump administration wanted to take that step and felt like they needed to make a big splash. (laughs) That would be a Hail Mary kind of move. Yeah. But that's what an October surprise is, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Yeah. So anyway, big moves in and around Iranian nuclear facilities over the past month or so. And this is happening in a very tense part of the world to a state that is already in pretty bad shape due to COVID and just general unpopularity. It's pretty remarkable to see what's going on, that whoever's uh, blowing things up and lighting them on fire in Iran feels comfortable going that far. (laughs) Yeah, comfortable and able to do it. Yeah. All right. I think that we will continue to monitor the situation. I agree. I think we will. And there will be a lot to see in the next four months, I'm sure. Yeah, hopefully nothing too explosive, but we will stay abreast and keep you posted. All right, Steve. Talk to you next week, man. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Pete. Bye. Bye.